podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you easily offended? Those people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt. When people shit on your favorite pop culture brands, does it make you want to go postal? Do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6, 2022, if you're not some pearl-clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp-dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? I'm cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ma get medieval on your ass. You don't shut for this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's some goddamn cool. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Done. See pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you had my curiosity. But now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and this is the Church of Tarantino Podcast. It's August, and that means we've reached, in my opinion, the most underrated film in Tarantino's filmography. I'm talking about the grindhouse homage slasher horror film, Death Proof. But before we drink shots of chartreuse and ram our muscle car into a car full of intoxicated ladies, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast our very first female guest. She is a contributor on the Metal Corners podcast, Miss Sam Aversa. Welcome, Miss Aversa, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, hello. I appreciate you coming on. You're very brave to be our first female guest. Um, <laughs> it means a lot to me in the podcast as we are going to be talking about, in my opinion, Tarantino's I mean, it's at least his most female-heavy cast, for sure, outside oh, of Mr. Russell and a couple others. Uh, it's pretty much a, a strong female-led cast. And I've always felt that he is very pro-female, but I wanted to get the actual opinion of a female instead of just 
make you guess. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy who mansplains to his audience how much females like Tarantino and what better person to bring on than you. And not only that, you'll be our first American-born guest on my main worship service podcast. Nice. You're the first in two categories, so congratulations. I would like to thank the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I have noticed that you do contribute to your husband's podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners whatever it is you want them to know about you or what very little you want them to know about you? Um, so I am the bully of the Metal Nerds Facebook group. I just like to go on there and troll every now and then because, you know, I work all day long. I also commute two hours, well, two hours total a day. So I got a lot of um, pent up jokes that I can't always get out. So I'll use the podcast as that. But Sean likes to say I'm like the brains behind the podcast. Like I'm always like, oh, you should do this. Oh, you should do this. I just can't turn off my management skills. So I'm always like, oh, hey, you like this? Go check out this podcast. It's like that really cheesy. There's always like a strong woman behind every successful man. Meet the strong woman. It's true. Um, it was my wife who pushed me to continue. Like she didn't know what I wanted to do with a podcast, but she knew I was a little down that Myself and Matt, all my listeners know kind of about this, we're no longer going to be doing it. And so I wasn't sure if I wasn't doing anything. And then she kind of really pushed me forward to keep doing it. And I'm glad she did because otherwise I wouldn't have. So, yeah, it, it is true. There's always a strong woman behind each, well, semi-successful. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to go out and pretend I'm not Joe Rogan over here and getting millions of listeners every episode. But I enjoy who does listen hey, and I'm very thankful. Right? Um, actually, I started streaming on Twitch when everything was shut down. And Sean oh, cool. was like, I think I'm going to do a podcast. I finally have an idea. And I was like, yeah, you should totally do it. And then he took my mic and then I was too lazy to ever set it back up. And then we just put all <laughs> efforts into the podcast. <laughs> He'd like me to be on the podcast like more regularly, but I am um, actually a very anxious person to get stuck in my head. So I get too nervous and then I'm like, mm, let's do it later. Let's do it later. So maybe in the next coming years you'll hear more from me but it could also be because maybe your husband and i are you know we don't realize but like just like the sound of our own voice we like to spend hours with ourselves listening to ourselves talk it's 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 a it's a sickness i'm i'm starting to learn that may be something i like to do so it's kind of like like that lead singer syndrome but now it's podcast host syndrome yes I, I think you've nailed it i think that's exactly what it is we're gonna that's why there's that's why i get rid of matt I, matt didn't know i think i jedi mind tricked him into no longer want to do a podcast so i could just shine without him you're like hey you should have another kid so <laughs> exactly. you have no time <laughs> that's exactly how he had his children everybody now the reason i did bring you on is because I have a belief. It's more of a theory. It's a theory that I feel Tarantino writes really great characters for women. I feel like he's very pro-female. However, like I said in the opening, I want to make sure that I'm just not full of shit and that I want to see it from besides the man brain. So how do you feel about QT and his treatment of women in his films? Um, I 100% believe that he is pro-women. And I know that there are, you know, maybe some extremists out there that think, you know, he really plays up like like the like sexism and mis misogyny within his films. But I think when he's doing those certain things, specifically in Death Proof, he's showing how women have to overcome those obstacles and like why I know me personally, I'm one of the most sarcastic people you will ever meet when you meet me face to face for the first time. Some people don't know how to take me, but that's because of the things I've had to like endure. Thankfully, like now I think we're kind of in more of a climate that's like a little more pro-women, but 
especially like the 90s, the early 2000s, like it wasn't the same. And I think for me, like just being in my 30s versus like I work with a lot of 20 year olds where females are like proving their feminism and kind of like wearing it on a banner on their shirt. Well, women my age, we had to just kind of like prove it in our actions more. And like, I grew up a tomboy. So I was always like skateboarding, going to shows and doing those things. But it was like hard because you felt like you had to be either a tomboy or a girly girl. And Tarantino creates these characters that allows them to be tough without losing their femininity. Agreed. I think, obviously, this will be post the Kill Bill episode, but I really feel that's kind of like when you see in the ending of Kill Bill with Beatrix when, you know, she just had to go through this unbelievable gauntlet to try to get her, well, at the point, she thought she was getting revenge, but then try to get her daughter back. And then when she does, that moment in the end in the bathroom where she's just very vulnerable and the motherly instincts show through it, you can see that she's she can do everything. You know, she's not just a pigeonhole character, you know, or she's just got to be a badass with no emotion she plays the full weight of uh of her femininity um strengths and vulnerabilities which i which i really do like and i think he tries to do that with most of his characters but women he allows women to be more than just either the sex pot or just you know the best that they're allowed to encapsulate a character much like men are always have been allowed to do in film you know a lot of times the bond girl stereotype or you know the airhead or the, the book smart girl like everyone had to be a certain you know almost stereotype of what people thought women were and he just lets them be who they are and they may just happen to be a badass but that just is who they've grown up to be he's not putting them into these very stereotypical roles that have been throughout it's not like some girl in heels only or like the really like rough around the edges girl you know he just allows them to like evolve into whatever they see fit for the character and i think there was like some interviewer i was watching where someone questioned like whether it was hard for him to write these female roles and he found it actually easier and kind of called everybody out on being you know a shitty writer if they can't do it but he was just always like surrounded like his friends are all like groups of girls so i think it definitely shows in his films which I appreciate. I think it could also do with his bringing up where, you know, he didn't really have his father. He had his mother. And then his mother, as is well documented, most of the gentlemen that she dated were were African-American. So you can kind of see where he gets a lot of his influences because I think he writes great African-American characters. I think he writes great women characters. I think a lot of that is influenced by the people who kind of, I don't want to say projected on it, but imprinted different things that he learned. You know, being from Tennessee, you would you would assume differently. Like if you said, someone said he's from Tennessee, they would assume, oh, you don't normally think of Tennessee. Yes, put yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't think of, of them to be writers of African-American characters and or female characters. So, but it is good to have you on as our first female guest so we can talk about this but we might as well start jumping into it so we can really get into the meat and potatoes i know you have a lot of notes and i'm really interested to hear your information as we talk about this <laughs> trust me i am I've, I've watched these movies so many times like i like to hear other people's perspectives because sometimes i feel like i got the blinders on and you know because it's my favorite thing yeah we we both drank the tarantino juice so we'll start with your first question are you a huge tarantino fan i already know the answer but if you weren't it would still be pretty cool that you're on to find out that you like really hated the guy i am i don't think i have as much knowledge as maybe somebody like you i also have the memory of the goldfish which will probably that'll probably reveal itself as we're going through this podcast i'm terrible with names so be prepared for that um but i am i'm 100 definitely my favorite director and probably writer oh wow that's awesome what is your gateway drug into the tarantino universe okay so i think he wanted like a title to be the answer of this, but I'm going to go a little off the rails. And for me, it was just college in general. 
So, you know, back in the days where pre-Netflix or actually it was Netflix where you had to mail in the DVD and get one back. When oh, that was, that, that was a um, nightmare. The myth of Blockbuster still existed. Um, you'd be like at your friend's house and everyone owned Pulp Fiction. So like you just threw that on as background noise. You know, I guess cult classics that was always on like in my friend group. But on the other side of it, I went to school for um, photography and my family actually owned a portrait studio so like weddings seniors all that like very cut and dry clean stuff and like me being kind of an asshole wanted to like go into college and put my own spin on it so I got really into Tarantino's style where it would be like grittier and like just his art style in general so I would actually incorporate his techniques into like my photos so like head and shoulders male portrait it had tons and tons of grain and like the subject would look like sickly or something. It couldn't just be like straightforward. So it was actually just like all of that just going in a circle right now. No, it's, that's a great answer. You never <laughs> know what it is. It's going to, you know, get you into something, whether it's a band or a, a movie or a director. There's always that there's that touchstone moment that you don't know before you it's there, but then you can't ever go back after you found it. I guess it's like heroin. I guess people say, once you try heroin, it's hard to forget it. I've never done it. Don't plan on it because of that. But it's, it's your, the heroin that gets us in. So what is your favorite Tarantino movie? This is like ever changing. <laughs> To be honest, it depends on the week. Last night, I just rewatched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, like, I feel like that. But before that, I would probably say Inglorious Bastards. But literally, it just depends on the day of the week and, like, my mood. They're wonderful. I don't know. It's a tough call a lot of times because it is ever-changing. You could watch one, and then a couple weeks later, you watch a new one. You're like, no, oh, I think this is one's better. I always thought Reservoir Dogs was lower, and then I rewatched it for this podcast. I was like, why am I putting it so low? And sometimes in my mind, in my list, I'm like, this is way better than what I thought it was. So I totally get that it can be very uh, circumstantial to the time that which you watch it. In your opinion, what is Tarantino's most underappreciated film? Death Proof. <laughs> yes. I, this is the hill I will die on. It's Death Proof. I feel like just they don't get it. If they don't like it, they didn't get it. That's actually one of my gripes with like a lot of like the Marvel films and the Star Wars films. I don't feel like you need to do research before you watch a film to be able to enjoy it. And that's like, I think I compare it to like studying for a test before I go to see a Marvel movie so I can like pick out all the things and appreciate it the same way as like the enthusiast but death proof i don't think is that same category i think it's just like they didn't want to understand it it's not that they weren't given the information that they needed i also think maybe some of the things that hurt it was it was part of a double bill and the fact that tarantino himself has come on said it's his worst film but he still loves it like so that you shit on your own stuff sometimes it pushes people away but i'm 100 with you see but i think that's why there's going to be a resurgence i'm hoping i feel like there's going to be a resurgence Because even now, like, since you asked me, I feel like Death Proof has, like, shown up in all these random places now. And maybe that's just the whole thing where once it gets brought up, you, like, notice it more. But I feel like everyone has slowly been talking about it. Even, like, random Instagram colding lines are doing, like, drops of Planet Terror and Death Proof, which I naturally bought. But um, (laughs) I don't know. And then I think that's the whole thing, too. Like, Tarantino's so smart. Maybe he did it purposefully so that, like, once his, like, career comes to an end, people dig through and, like, find those little hidden gems like that. Death Proof. Well, we are reaching the 15th. This is the 15th anniversary of the release of that movie, which is that it's insane. Me. Oh, it hurts you. It hurts me even more. Good Lord. It makes me. I definitely saw this in theaters like three times. So that, that hurts me. My mom probably dropped me off. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculously good. It was so good that when we started that podcast, we were talking about Watch Us or Die. This was the first episode we did. So when this comes out, it'll be almost like the two-year anniversary from when we did that episode. But who is your all-time favorite character in the vast Tarantino-verse? Um, again... 
ever-changing depends on the day of the week there's two like standout performances for me Hans Landa Landa I don't remember how to say it from Inglorious Bastards and then Rick Dalton like what what Leo did with that character was insane yeah and he doesn't get any in the two movies he's been in for Tarantino he has put out some amazing performances and didn't win for either which is it's a travesty in my opinion yeah but that's that's his whole curse because what did he win for the Revenant he did he won for the Revenant yep and that was the last movie he was in until um, Once Upon a Time. He did like a three, four-year hiatus between the two. Was his last one Don't Look Up, or was there something after that? Yes, his most recent one was Don't Look Up. Too. Yep, He did that after Once Upon a Time. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. We're going to dive into it before we do. If you have or haven't listened before, I have a section of kind of uh, interesting facts. So we're going to start it off. Fucking, 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 this movie? Uh, uh, 27. That is really <laughs> low. It's 143 times the word sense. fuck is used. I think they say fuck 27 times in that end oh, scene yeah, in the car true. chase. I think they say about that many times then. Body count. How many deaths are in this movie on screen? How many on screen oh, deaths do we have? Is it five? So close. I think you're forgetting the end. I couldn't Six. remember. Oh, oh, five in the yeah, first I half. Actually, I wasn't counting Rose McGowan. Okay. Damn it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you not count? She doesn't Rose. die in my heart. Okay. Pam lives. <laughs> Ooh, some bare feet sightings. How many times does a character come on scene with bare feet? So once they come on scene, so not like we cut away and then come back. How many times do we have bare feet shown on screen? A lot. Well, the one girl, the one girl doesn't have shoes on the entire time, right? Julia? Jungle Julia basically Infinite. would be considered each no scene idea. that she's in. <laughs> yep. It actually comes out to be 11. 11 times. Because it gets less as we go to the second half of the movie. We basically just get Abernathy when she's the, the feet, which we'll get into the feet licking part. Uh, that's at the, at the second half of the movie. The first half of the movie is just like feet galore. And then he kind of pulls back on the feet. And we just, we have no more feet after that. Next up. The motherfucking Tarantino-verse. So I try to impart on all our listeners the ways that the universe connects throughout. So there are five solid connections, and then what I call four sort of. Number one. The first one, and this is always one of the ones, Red Apple Cigarettes makes an appearance in this film, as it has in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two. Stuntman Mike makes mention of Big Kahuna Burger, which has also made an appearance in Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and also in a distant universe, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Actually, Red Apple and Big Kahuna. Yes, very progressive. Number three. Mr. Texas Ranger Earl McGraw returns along with his son, son number one. Earl was also in From Dust Till Dawn and Kill Bill, while his son, son number one, his real-life son, was also in Kill Bill. Number four. Kim's Game of Death painted Mustang has a sticker on the back that says Little Pussy Wagon, clearly referring to the infamous Pussy Wagon from Kill Bill. Number five. And lastly, of our solid ones, Arlene drinks from an Akuna Boys soda cup in the beginning. It's the same cup that Sharonda drinks from in Jackie Brown, and it's the name of the street gang run by Esteban Viejo in Kill Bill. So there's our solid universe connections. Our sort of. There are some in the fandom that believe this is Jungle Julia's third appearance in the Tarantino-verse. Her first being 
as named Unruly Julie in Tarantino's unfinished, almost first film, My Best Friend's Birthday, which is kind of what turns out to be true romance. She is mentioned as a rival DJ to a character named Clarence. The second time is in Natural Born Killers. People believe that she is Wayne Gale's assistant as she is named Julie. Now, I did see a thread with you the other night where we're talking about possibly had a billboard in Kill Bill. I did some research. I couldn't find that, so I'm not discounting it. I but there's a possibility. Either. I couldn't find it either. I think the person texting that may have saw that one of her billboards in Death Proof, she is in the Kill Bill jumpsuit yep. on the billboard. Yep, yep. So that may be where that cross mutated itself. Abernathy's ringtone on her phone is the song Twisted Nerve that Elle whistles in Kill Bill and is actually a song in that scene where she walks into the hospital to go and dispatch of the bride. There are two songs from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack that can be found on the jukebox. First is Miser Lou and the second is Never Can Tell, the song that they twisted to in the movie Pulp Fiction. And lastly, there is a belief among some fans that the trucker who tries to rape the comatose bride in Kill Bill is Jasper from this film who's selling the white challenger in the second half. I don't subscribe to that, but I don't hate it. How do you feel about that as a possibility? Because it's a weird fan theory that some people believe because it is the same actor. I don't know. He always plays this like redneck dumbass. Like even when he's in Sandler movies, he's always this bumpkin. Like he's in Waterboy. Just who he is. He's, just, he's always the bumpkin. I know. I think that's just who he is. He's typecast. But I just felt like he wasn't. I felt like he was more of a dumbass in this film as opposed to the trucker because he doesn't have a name. He's just called the trucker in Kill Bill. So again, if you enjoy the fact that Jasper is the guy who gets killed later by her, so be it. I, I'm good with it. But there are our connections. Um, the jukebox is also the same jukebox from Natural Born Killer that's in the bar. That would be Tarantino's own personal. Well, yeah. The Amy or whatever it is. Yeah, the AMI Continental. Oh, AMI. Me, me just reading words as words. And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino, chapter 8, Death Proof. We'll start this off with a did you know how the name of this movie came about? Uh, yeah. He was drunk with Sean Penn? Yes. It was originally going to be called Thunderbolt, right? Thunder, thunder um, something? So that's... Thunder, That's thunder a good point. I will, yeah, Thunderbolt is what it comes up. So he was there out drinking or something, and then he was talking about he wanted to buy a Volvo because it was a safer car. Oh, yeah, because he never spent money on a real car or something, right? Yeah, and he was worried that, you know, the little crash they did in Pulp Fiction, he was worried that was going to actually happen to him one day. So in this drunken stupor, Sean told him, you can death-proof anything. And explained to him all he had to do was give a stunt crew 10 to 15 grand and they could death proof any vehicle he wanted. And he always remembered that he loved that idea that something would be death proof. And then eventually, you know, germinated from there. You know, but it was just the idea that of death proofing. And to go to your answer about Thunderbolt, that is more of an homage to what happened in Grindhouse theaters. So a lot of these Grindhouse movies were B movies. And what ended up happening is sometimes they would name a movie, we'll just say Thunderbolt. And then as the movies already, you know, the titles were made, they're getting ready another company would sue them because someone else had the name rights and so they would have to change the name and they would change it to death proof that's why there's that cool thunderbolt over her feet and then all of a sudden you get this like little black insert of just death proof mm -hmm. so it was an homage to those days so yes but there is a moment where it does say Quentin Tarantino's thunderbolt which is always so so very very cool I always, I always love that little nod in the beginning now did you also know this is the only Tarantino film that takes place in chronological order with no flashbacks I did 
Every other film has some kind of flashback or something. Just a little uh, little nugget there. Some shinfo for you, for the folks at home. As we're talking about feet, let's jump into it right off the bat. We get right in and we have Arlene's pretty feet. As you talked about the movie Once Upon a Time, and we'll get into that in a couple months, but more of dirty feet. And some people get grossed out by it. But again, I think it goes to the 60s hippie culture. I always feel nothing in a Tarantino film is coincidental. It's always there for a reason. Now, my feeling has always been that when he shows these feet, and I talked about it in Jackie Brown, is he's doing it as a way to introduce us to female characters and let us know that they're definitely either a femme fatale or a sex pot, but without doing tits and ass, which is in the only 80s, that was all it ever was. So I feel like he gives us this visual clue that the woman that we're about to see, through her attractive feet, we should know that she is someone that is attractive and could be a sex pot, could be a dangerous spot for somebody, could be a bunch of things, but he's never held on, well, there's never been female nudity in any of the movies he's directed. We've actually seen more male frontal nudity <laughs> in his movies than we have female, which again I, is what it is. I mean, if you're going to have nudity in a movie it should be fair across the board. But how do you feel about his use of feet? And is he making it more of a, a sensual statement or is he being gratuitous? Is he over-sexualizing women? Like, what is your stance on his use of women's feet in his film? Especially this one. I agree with what you say. I think, you know, there's never like I don't know why this is the one that pops in my had but like that transformers scene uh was like megan fox over the car <laughs> over like the, yes. there was lots of opportunity for something like that especially in this film with a bunch of cars and instead we went with feet and it's just like almost like poking fun at the fact that you know the human brain is stupid that it can just like sexualize almost anything and so like why are we always using these specific parts of women there are a lot of feet in this one and most of them, but it doesn't take away from anything for me or change it. Like, obviously, I know that's just like, oh, it's a Tarantino film. I was actually joking with Sean that I, it's weird that I don't have a Tarantino tattoo. And I was like, what am I going to do? A car window with feet? It would be cool if you had just feet in the feet. You had the actual name of the movie. Like, so people had to kind of like, like you had Uma's feet for Pulp Fiction. You know, just these different feet. People were like, Or like oh, Margot Robbie's dirty feet over the movie. Yes, dirty feet. Chair. Yes, over the seat. People hate that. I will say that in this, this is the one film where he intentionally sexualizes women because we're in a horror film. Mm -hmm. We're in a slasher film. And so he's paying homage to the 70s, 80s. So women were obviously sexualized. And that's no bigger than, besides the feet of Arlene, but when we get introduced to our very first character being Jungle Julia, who's absolutely gorgeous, who is the daughter of Sidney Poitier, one of the greatest actors of all time. She's named Sidney. I forget her middle name right off the top of my mind, but she goes uh, by Sydney and her middle name, Poitier. Tamelia? Yes, I, yeah, I think it, I think you're correct. I can't read. Something. I mean, we see her, again, she's in underwear, ass shot, she's walking, and again, we're supposed to feel this is being sexualized. I think he did it intentionally because of the movie we're in. Because he's never done this with any of his other films. There's no other shots. Like in this movie, we get a few women's ass and close-ups, but they're always covered like she's not wearing a thong. We're meant to know that we're supposed to look at her as an object of desire so that when we see Mike in a little bit, you know, we know why he's going after them. There's never been too many ugly girls that they've put in like the any of the movies where they're always at a camp like Jason he's always killing people when they're having sex like it's always <laughs> the sin element put into it when I was a kid you'd watch and be like oh look there's and then all of a sudden you're like oh they're dead you know so you always knew in a in a horror movie as soon as you saw any kind of skin you're like they're about to die any second now these people are about to die horribly you know it kind of you know turns it on his ear like you're sitting there going oh look naked girls and all of a sudden like oh god they're all dead I do feel this is his one film where he intentionally sexualizes but I feel that, and I could be wrong, so that's why I'll ask you, do you feel like he did it 
with the homage in mind because no other film before that has he done it. But how do you feel about the way he has decided to then obviously over-sexualize them, especially in the first half of this film? Um, I could definitely see where that like idea gets drawn from because like this is a slasher film. It, there's not machetes or knives or chainsaws, but there's cars. So it makes sense to me. But also I think like what we were saying, talking about earlier, I think like the sexuality of the women kind of builds up their character and how powerful they are because it's not like the oh what was me can you help me open this jar of peanut butter that i can't open it's like i know who i am so i think he did a really good job with that so that's where i was talking about like some very extreme feminists think that like you know he played up too much with our sexuality but i for me i think it just proves that women can be both i felt that jungle julia was a very powerful character the moment i saw on screen i never once oh, felt I totally any of these like damsels in distress at my all. ass verbally and I would just like fall oh, down. Like, she, she, she was, yeah, she was tough. And as the movie goes, we know that, you know, obviously there's some boys we're going to get into who they're, they're trying everything they can to try to get these girls to bring them to get in their pants. And these girls, I love that one, they have each other's backs. And two, that they're in control of the whole situation. In a lot of the other movies, it's always like, oh, come on. And it's like the cheerleader and the quarterback and trying to coerce the girls into sex. And they eventually have sex and they all get massacred. I felt it was different in this one. I felt that these women were able to, they were almost using the boys for their own benefit, which was nice to see. It was a reverse. It was instead of the boys, you know, getting the upper hand, it was these guys spending their money and getting their drinks and them just being like, at the end of this day, these boys are staying here and they can kick rocks. We're going to go have a girl's day somewhere else. And these guys can go fuck themselves like if they're stupid enough to fit like foot the bill go for it no pun intended but yeah exactly they're like if they're gonna buy me shots and if they're gonna get me drunk and i don't have to pay for it that's on them like i don't have to do anything else one thing i do love and i don't know how i feel about it but for those of you when i said in the beginning it's an homage it didn't do well overseas because they don't have grindhouses they don't have drive-ins so this kind of film escapes a lot of my fellow podcasters who i've done you know episodes with on here who are from overseas so they were telling me like this doesn't play well over there because they don't you know they don't have the american experience but what i love about this first half and especially in the first half everything seems to be really real slasher heavy in the first half of the film and now we get more car chase second half and, and, and girl power second half but in this first half they intentionally scratch the main print of this film they go out of the way to make the jump cut there's that one scene with the um the african-american girl who has a bit of the uh, afro and she comes in she's gonna do the whole butterfly speech where like she comes in and introduces herself and they show that same clip again oh yeah it like it looks like it's been burned or cut there's a moment when she is kind of telling the speech and jungle julia is explaining to her you know about the whole sexy thing you know maybe you're with your girls and then all of a sudden you see the camera back up and then it bumps the table and you hear it hit the table and you see it push back forward like all these things are intentional and I absolutely love that about it but if you're not a fan of that kind of film or don't know it it could be jarring some people be like what's going on why is this doing this so I can see why some people may not like it if they don't know what they're getting into when they go into this how did you feel about it the first time uh, you know you saw it and you noticed this was like intentional this wasn't a mistake so I saw it in theaters like I said earlier as part of the Grindhouse double feature and then I don't remember which one came out first uh i think it was this then sin city sin city did since they came out in 05 yes this came out okay. in 07 so yes sin city was the first one out i was like really into like this type of like un, i don't know the word i want to use but it wasn't like your mainstream film like either you got it or you didn't and it was definitely more artsy and you had to like put on your thinking cap a little bit and then but there's just like so many different layers to it i love weird stuff i actually like there was a point in my life where i would only watch like b-list sundance films so i really like it but i 
again, like I can understand where the average person could just like overlook it. I'm a weird art kid. So like the more obscure, the better for me. I'm with you. Obviously being a film person myself, I love the lengths to which they went to replicate it. You know, I mean, they went a long way to do it. Even like in college too, like I, I don't know if I was just like brainwashed by Tarantino, but like I was in school for photography when like the first round of like digital cameras became accessible. Like, so there was always like the, the hospital and the Mumia for like your high-end well financially off studios and then like your regular studios locally like they, you couldn't really afford that so like the first round of cameras which is like Fuji and Kodak which when do you hear Kodak when you think of any camera I nowadays know. when those are coming to be I was very like snobby and I was like film forever film forever so I would be like also in the dark room like scratching my negatives and like printing on top of other prints and double exposing. So like knowing like kind of the background of all of that and knowing how much effort it takes to do it and not screw it up just makes this more of a masterpiece in my opinion. When this, the films used to be that way, again, so I even go back further to when I used to work for what was called Hoyt before it became Regal here in New York State. And I used to do the projection booth. And so that's when you had to put the reels together. They would come in the big cans and you actually put the films together. And what they were replicating in this film was when these movies played for a very long time, you know, they had to go through a projector and they would get scratched because the person didn't know what they're doing. They would catch fire if they played too long. I remember we ran Titanic so many times. It started to catch fire and burn through the print. And when you have to fix it, you have to cut out the scenes. And then if you don't put the tape over the seam right, you get the pops and the sound, which nowadays no movie experience is like that. No one has even a clue what that's like because everything is pristine and perfect which is awesome because you get to see the movie as is but there was something cool about that like there's no more they talk about it in Inglorious Bastards but also especially in Fight Club the little cigar marks in the corner where that meant that you had to then move the reel to change it so I mean it's the geek part of me that gets so jazzed that he went through and had to you know scratch this without actually ruining the movie too by overdoing it because you could overdo it and now he's ruined his print now he's fucked his whole movie and that a really adventurous and ballsy move for him to you know him and Sally Menke to, to do well i think that's like one of his gripes nowadays with films too is like it's all digital so it's not what does he say it's like not worth people leaving their houses because like the art form got taken from and again i don't know like that's kind of how i felt too when i was doing photography all the time kind of why i got out of it and now i sell t-shirts i get you (laughs) i get it i'm of two minds i love film but there's a lot of great stuff that w- comes with digital. It makes it very affordable for people. He'll keep shooting on film for forever. So lo- as long as well, he'll have one more film. So at least that'll happen. <laughs> we'll see from there. <laughs> like I said, this first half is definitely a slasher horror vibe. But I think some of the things we've talked about even before getting on air, getting on air like we're on the radio. Jungle Julia. Some of his stuff is underlooked like as a writer. Uh, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. And by that, he also writes great scenes. His dialogue scenes are amazing. And a lot of it starts in cars. And I think, you know, we learned that especially, you know, a great dialogue scene in the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, but the Pulp Fiction car scene where we've got both Vincent and Jules is iconic. I feel in this movie, he's got such amazing dialogue scenes, especially with the women and they're mostly driving their cars. And we open, we get to know these three girls, Jungle Julia, Arlene, and Shanna, not Shanna, Shanna Banana. And I love the fact that that we, you know, we spent a good, five, almost feels like five, ten minutes with them. We learned so much about them and their relationship. And in both you know, scenes, you know, when we get to the, the second half, which we'll talk about, I think he's, it's underappreciated. Because, you know, movies nowadays, when we go to them, 
there's not a lot of dialogue scenes. It's a lot of it's exposition, and we got to get from this to this. Like, I'm not shitting on MCU movies. I enjoy them just as much. But they're not spending 10-minute scene with characters talking. The it character doesn't push the movie yeah, further. That's that's usually my biggest gripe. So, yeah. So, uh, what, what did you think about, you know, these amazing dialogue scenes in cars? Like, I almost felt like I was back in college with friends, and, like, we're just driving around talking about shit. Like, I don't know. There's something refreshing sometimes. Like, he's able to drop nuggets in for us about what's going to be kind of relevant later on, but he does it so subtly that we just don't realize we're, you know, it's just kind of being drip fed into us. Yeah, well, all the, all of the dialogue between the girls in the car in the first half of the film really plays up to like what happens in the bar. Like you don't expect Arlene to end up doing the lap dance because she seems so very reserved and you wouldn't necessarily expect that from the conversation that she had with Shana. I'm so bad with names. Yeah, she, she, yeah. <laughs> Shana's the redhead who drives in the obviously We all know Jungle Julia. Because they're like, oh, do guys really like that thing? If they're not getting like everything. And then, so just from that conversation alone, you would assume she's very like prude about that. And then, even then, when she goes to with um, Eli Ross into the car and is very specific and sets very specific parameters, like yeah, I love that. Yeah. It all ties together for who she is as a person. So, like, when she does end up like being butterfly and doing all that, it's like her breakout moment within herself, challenging herself. So I appreciate those. I'm very big on character building. It's a huge point you have to like win in all films for me. It also helps us with Jungle Julia as we know that Jungle Julia is like the leader of the pack, so to speak. Like she's the one who's made the most of her life with them. She's got the biggest hair, so it's natural. True. <laughs> she is gorgeous to look at. She's unbelievably gorgeous to look at, but she's a phenomenal actress. And when she's doing the whole scene, you know, we think, man, she's just this alpha female. But then it's great because then when she sneaks off the text that guy it's a, it's it, she's very very vulnerable which you know for the most of the part of the movie we've already seen she's not vulnerable at all she seems like you know she'll kick like you said she'll kick your ass either verbally or physically she's in charge jungle julia runs the fucking show no one runs the show besides jungle julia just see her that vulnerability of like she really likes a guy you know even though she can talk this big game about plenty of white men and black men have worn their teeth on her ass kind of thing and like what men fall at her feet but here she is kind of like almost i don't want to say falling but like really has a crush on a guy and really wants this guy to be there and like the guys in the bar have no shot with her but she's you know just to see that vulnerability is it's just these touch of geniuses that work because of what he sets up and then all of a sudden you know you get these little small moments and all it was was a simple texting on an old ass flip phone like this is just so dates the movie but it's so great people just like texting and then just send that's like one of the only um things that like kind of tells you what time period you're in is that cell phone because other, if you took that cell phone scene out, you Agreed. would have no idea. I'm still not even a hundred percent sure, but like. Well, I I think maybe some. You know, maybe this younger generation coming up may be a little thrown off because people don't have their phones out at the table. Like when they're at the bar. Like, for instance, Pam wouldn't get a ride from him because she would text somebody or get an Uber. Get so an that's Uber. where it might also throw people. Yeah. Stemman Mike would not have been as an effective killer in these days with Uber. He no. just wouldn't have been as effective. They also wouldn't understand that the, those like three text messages going back and forth cost her like $4. Wasn't on a. I know. I know. One minute. But yeah. People don't even understand like back when you'd phone call somebody. Like most people, like if they get a phone call now on their cell phone, you're like, who the hell's calling me? But back then, like, if you had a good friend, they didn't call you after 9. That's when you got your free nights and weekend minutes. Unless they were in your circle of 5. Unless they're in a circle. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So ridiculous. Now you can just call. You can call China right now, and it's not going to cost you an extra thing. It's amazing how quickly we've changed. Let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kurt Russell, who I love him in almost every movie he's in. And he's rarely a bad guy. And in this one, he is just a delicious, delicious bad guy. I think what helps, and again, this is why I'm glad you're on, because... Again, this is, again, all just preconceptions I have in my mind of what I think 
Kurt Russell is. But he's got this sexy, cool, but yet very creepy, dangerous vibe for him that I feel is both alluring and alarming at the same time. I think he's got the bad boy vibe that kind of excites, especially, not the other girls, but I think especially Arlene, which is why she eventually does the dance. But also the same thing that creeps out. It's like sending off these two signals like, oh my God, there's something about this man I want to be closer to. And then there's also like, oh my God, there's something about this man that says run. Does he give the same vibes? Did you have that feeling? What was your... He is everyone... I feel like every girl has that like one older or a couple like older men or like someone else's uncle that is like cool and relevant and can like reel you into conversation. You're like, what is happening? And then also just like rides the line of being also the creepy uncle. And that's what he does. He like makes you feel safe and like makes you feel like, oh, no. You're overthinking it like when he's talking to Pam and then like uh, ugh, uh, the nachos is just like a dead giveaway to what his character is going to be too. like ugh, the nachos makes me want to die. Really? You don't like nachos? See, I was no, the I, like I, them, the nachos. I just don't want to see people. I, I'm really big. I hate like ASMR is like my nightmare. I hate listening to gotcha. people like chew on chips. So it was just like, uh, uh. But yeah, like just like the creepiness of him eating the nachos is just like alluding to his true character. Or like if you like I used to bartend and I could just like put myself back in those days where you have like that one regular that doesn't cross the line, but is just sitting on it 24 <laughs> seven. That is Kurt Russell yes. and stuntman. Like, Everything he says may or may not be an innuendo. You're not 100 percent sure if you're innuendoing or not. You're like, oh, that, that could have been. I don't know. That, that's close. It's like the it's the it's the hand on the middle of the back. Not too low, not too high, just in the middle, making your skin crawl. Yes. But I think he does a great job as a character. I think Tarantino does a great job of keeping him in that mysterious... Like when he says, and I'm not stalking you ladies, which we know he is, but he says, but I didn't say it wasn't a wolf. He just keeps that sexy, badass vibe without being like, like you can tell there's something that, like the scar, you go, there's a story behind that. But yet, it's that two-way street, right? So is it a cool story, like he got it because he beat some guy's ass who was, you know, being mean to women or whatever? Or did he get it because he's a piece of shit? You know, you don't know where he is. But he never touches the ladies. He's never disgusting with the lady you know what i mean even when he throws the keys he never gives an innuendo although once you see it or you know the movie you even going into it, you go this guy's the i mean we know he's the killer and that's the cool thing too is it being a slasher film that we get to meet the killer personally instead of such some guy who doesn't need to run but is always able to walk at a really good pace to catch any person running in the woods never takes off a mask and is unkillable it becomes almost a more dangerous character than any of the Michaels or the Jasons because it's a real person. It's not just like this weird entity that just kills for no reason. You know, I don't know why fans don't give this enough of, of attention. Like, he really flips the slasher genre on its head. I mean, one, we don't, like you said, there's no knives. He uses his vehicle to kill people, which is, I mean, we're going to get that in a second. That's, it's just brutal what happens to these ladies. It's just like the way he delivers his lines, every single line, too, is just so, like, smooth. It's like butter. Oh, God, there's nothing, when he says, there's nothing more fetching than a bruised ego on a fallen angel. I was like, this dude is the smoothest motherfucker around. Every emo girl just, like, fell apart. I was like, yeah. I'm not a female, but I'm like, I'm going to get in this guy's car. Like, that's it. When he said that line, he, just the way he delivered it, like, he does this great, he focuses only on her. He, like, locks eyes with her. He doesn't care about the, the peanut gallery that are her friends who are probably trying to save her from him or don't you know who look at him like oh look at this ugly motherfucker and he's just locked in on her and i think that's huge he gives her the eye contact she's front and center he's talking to her he's like realizing that you know you thought you're gonna get talked to a lot tonight like he is being so smooth i was like god 
damn this. And then it's also scary because he's so smooth. That's how he kills them. Like he is such a smooth talker and so good at it that he disarms you and you get suckered into his whole, just the whole vibe of, of, of Stuntman Mike. I don't know. I just love Kurt Russell in this role. I think uh, the way they designed him as the killer, as the villain was, as he does in all his roles, but he's the smoothest of the villains that, that we've got the chance to see, I think, in his universe. You know, all the other ones are, you can tell, have an edge to them. You know, there's nothing smooth about Calvin Candy. There's nothing smooth about Hans Landon. <laughs> Kurt Russell is just the smoothest dude when he's Stuntman Mike. That's how he was able to disarm all these ladies. I know Mickey Rourke was the other, like, contender, and they really wanted him. But, yes. like, I'm so glad that fell through because I cannot picture Stuntman Mike being anybody else. No, me either. Me either. Mickey Rourke's cool, but I don't think... It would have been, it would have been a different movie. Plus, it's so close to him just playing Marv in yep, Sin City. Exactly. That it would have been, it would have been, you know, you would have been, is this Marv? Is this, is this villain Marv? So I agree with you. Chartreuse, you taking a shot of it or are you passing? Because that looked like, I don't know. Have you ever had it? I have not, but I don't it know if you no, remember wild. Kool-Aid Ecto Cooler, the Kool-Aid Ecto Cooler that was from, uh, they made back in the 80s from High C. It was High C Ecto Cooler from the uh, Ghostbusters movies. Yep. That was just, it was like this green, uh, I don't know. It's hard to. Yeah. I used to uh, bartend at the Green Onion and that was like one of their strange things that they would have that you wouldn't find at normal bars. And it's kept in like a wooden box. And then there's like all these special ways to pour it, but it is an acquired taste. Let me tell you, it is so earthy. It tastes like it looks, but not in the refreshing way as Ecto Cooler. I think they did it right there on the set because you could tell in that shot how disgusted they were at swelling that shot. Like the facial expressions you got from the kid, they're like, oh, what the fuck? So like they're drinking turpentine. Like that's what the. That's kind of what it tastes like. <laughs> oh, so, well, so I'll take your word for it. So actually, I wasn't 100% sure it was real, but then I was like, no. Tarantino got a real thing. No, it's real. Are you taking the shot sent over? I mean, I know that they know Tarantino's character. So obviously this is a bar that they frequent. It's like Cheers. So like they're like the norm of Cheers. They walk in and everyone knows them. But still... And again, that was like, you know, late 80s, 90s when that show came out. So things have really changed. Are you as a female with your friends taking a shot from a bartender, whoever it may be, even if you know them, that just brings it over for free? Or is that kind of a danger of our society and cultures, the free drink mentality? Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> so that was 2007. So you, so if we made that movie today, there's probably zero chance those ladies take that shot. Um, I wouldn't say zero chance because, you know, I just know better. And I know, you know... How old are they in, supposed to be? As I feel like, I want to say late 20s, maybe early 30s. I want to say they're probably playing late 20s because they're obviously in their careers, but I feel like they're also maybe early 30s. They're definitely past college, and they definitely look like they're they're further along in their career. So I want to say, I want to say at least early 30s. If the shot is leaving the bar and coming to my table, I'm going to say no. If it's like given to me at the bar, maybe, but even then it's just, it's a different world now that this is taking a dark turn. But <laughs> I know. Well, you know, funny thing is when I saw it, you know, many years ago, I thought nothing of it. I just no. thought nothing of it. I did, I actually didn't even think about it until you said it. I looked, I was like, man, are women actually going to take a shot regardless of who it's from? You know, it's, I know it's Warren and they obviously know him and he's taking the shot too. So but at the same time, it's that, especially for females, like, I mean, men, we don't usually have that as, as a worry we have to worry about. We're usually the ones doing that kind of stupid shit. I've never had to worry about it. And not only that, I've never been given a free shot. I'm going to be honest with you. No one, unless I'm at like a wedding or something, very rarely is anyone's sending a free shot my way so i don't ever get that uh I, no one's sending me chartreuse but i just wanted to find out if if you as a female in your 30s now would even think about taking a shot from someone 
even if you do know them, especially not in like not, not in the comfort of your own home. It's at a bar somewhere. It's definitely a I have to watch from bottle empty into vessel to the table to my mouth situation. What a sentence. <laughs> Good. So we'll move on. I, just, I had to I had to know. <laughs> now, one funny cheesy part that the cheesiest part of the whole film is that I think her name's Cookie. When the Tarantino turns, and goes, "Hey, Cookie, one of the lights out in the parking lot. Flip on the light." So while Arlene's out smoking, all of a sudden the light kicks on, and then there's the car. It's totally an homage to the '80s, but it is one of the most cheesy moments. But it's intentional because I think he's you know leaning into the cheese of what those movies were. But you're just like it is a tad cheesy. Would you be as scared of that vehicle? And do you also want to own that vehicle as if your life depended? Because if I could only own one vehicle, it's that vehicle of stuntman Mike's with the paint job. I think it was like purchased afterwards for like five hundred dollars. Really? Yeah. Uh, he sold it to How did the. I, miss out on this? I think the stunt. Man, stuntman Mike Stuntman, I think, bought it for $500 oh, got, and oh, gave it to it? his son. I think. Don't quote me. I bet that kid, I read that that kid doesn't deserve that. Uh, probably that not. That fucking kid doesn't deserve it. So this was the other part I was going to get into. So fun fact, I grew up at the drag strip. So you asking me to do this film, which is also why I'm a little biased about this film. Like, I love 70s. 60s cars so like just from a car aspect it's really cool for me my family was all like gm so like whatever about the mopar stuff with the chevys but um that's also why i love this film so much just because like people think racing they think like nascar or like rally racing but i grew up at the drag strip which is all motor all driver and like these are the cars that really showcase that so i was a little so which one are you picking in this film then? Which is the if you could own any one of the vehicles in this film, which one would you pick and why? Um, I would do the Dodge Challenger, the Vanishing Point. I don't remember which one. I can't. I couldn't find it. I knew this a long time ago, and I can't find it to fact check myself. But one of it's either the Nova, or I think it's the Challenger. But they actually swapped out the engine to a different engine because stock the engine itself is actually very quiet, which doesn't aid to the film. So that's a little fun fact. Another fun fact is the car on the poster is not a car that's in the it's movie. It's a Camaro. They put on a Camaro. Yeah, it's not even the car in the it's movie. It's a Camaro. Now. I do have something I want to show you. Now, you won't be able to see, and I'll, I'll put it up when this episode comes up. But one of my guests who's going to be on the podcast, who's going to be doing the uh, Bible study, he sent me this, and he made this. I don't know if you can see it, but it's it's the duck. Oh, the duck? He made the emblem. Yeah, he That's made a sick. little pin emblem. And it has uh, he put it against the thing that says Thunderbolt, the one frame that they actually have the name of the movie Thunderbolt on it. Nice. So Sean Wheeler is the one who made that for me. So it's it's so fucking cool. I, I, he sent it to me, and I was like, holy shit. So if anything happens from this podcast, that's one of the coolest things I got. So there there's you go. a little bit of fan Worth now. it. Worth every single cent. Now, the almost sneeze. There is a lot of talk about that almost sneeze being – it's not like a, it's a comedic moment in the film, but it says a lot more about Mike and his mental state than it does about him just being funny, not being able to sneeze. Do you know what, I mean, I've read some stuff, but what, what is your interpretation? Or uh, what have you read about it? I got nothing on this Really? One. Okay, so in me. <laughs> let me mansplain this for you. All I'm right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> here it comes. Listen here, little lady. Some of the belief is that the reason he couldn't sneeze is as much like when we get into at the end when Earl McGraw says, you know, it's how he shoots his goo. Can't do anything powerful until he's taken the power from them. So he couldn't sneeze in front of them because he hadn't killed them yet. So he couldn't, you know, exert his power because totally he hadn't that. had a chance. 
to kill them. That's just something I read. So that's not me. Like, I don't want to take credit for like, I'm over here analyzing. At the same time, I was like, thought it was funny. And it wasn't until years ago when I started reading about it, people were like, oh yeah, the sneeze means more than you think. And I was like, well, let me find out. And so I totally buy into it because I know that while yes, it is comedic, he would not just suddenly throw it in there for nothing. Mm -mm. Why do you think Arlene decided to give him the lap dance after being really seems like she was against it the whole way. What was the turning point? What was the thing he said? Oh, he called her out. He completely called her out. Bruce ego and all that. Nothing gets me specifically. If you challenge me to something and I'm already upset about it, I'm going to prove you wrong. So do you think there was any underlying attraction that she had towards him, whether she wanted to admit that to her friends or not? Um, I think so. Because when you see in, you know, when they're interplaying with each other, and especially it's the little flirty when he says, well, I've got a book and you're going in, I have to put you on a chicken shit. There's that little flirty moment between them. And like, she's not guarded. I don't want to say she's vulnerable. She's a bit vulnerable. She's, she, you can see it in her face, the way the actress plays it. She's definitely flirting with him. She likes that he's, like you said, challenging her. Again, I thought she, there was a bit of that flirty moment and that may be one of the reasons that she decided to do it. I think also, too, like she didn't she didn't have anybody else come up to her. That's a very strong point. Bruce being, egos, being rejected is... Bruce egos, uh, whether any other woman wants to admit it or not, will, is almost like a chugging, like a energy drink and being able to like run three marathons in a row that will empower you to do a lot of things oh, wow. you didn't think. <laughs> Right before we jump into the uh, the uh, our little lap dance scene, there is a bit of poetic irony in the poem that he's supposed to tell. But when he says, you have miles to go before you sleep. And that is so poetic because in a little bit, they have miles to go before they get down the road and he puts her to sleep permanently. <laughs> and it's just such a sweet little undertone that, because when he's saying it to her, we're all like, oh my God, he's like, you're like, he's, like I said, he's smooth as hell. You're like... Butter. And you're just completely missing. It's not a throwaway line. You're just missing the whole reason. You know, he's not, it's not one of those like, cool, I'm going to recite a poem like, you know, 25, Ezekiel 2517. It's intentional. Like, I really do believe he went and found this poem to have her say it just for this poetic irony that is given to her. But us as the layman viewer, the first time we're seeing, or even a couple of times seeing it, you're like, it's right over your head. You know, like when he suddenly sits there and gives him the drink and reads it, you're like, oh man, he's been stalking him all day. Like he's been listening. And then when you land that line, it wasn't until I saw this before I was going to record with you. All of a sudden it's like landed in my lap like someone just dropped a drink on me. I was like, how the fuck have I seen this this many times? And I just now am catching on to the real meaning behind what he's saying to her as opposed to just being this real cool delivery of a line. What did you think about that little line? Was it was it a cool little uh, a nod or do you think it was a little a step too far, a little too cheesy? No, it's a slasher film. I think they did it right. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I get like sometimes things are too cheesy, but even like that car scene with the, when she turns on the lights, like I feel like it just adds to the whole whole slasher vibe like you need you need some cheese sometimes you do it but he does deliver with all the cool in the world just like butter he's so smooth i know i want to be kurt russell so bad but that's not gonna happen i do love when you watch it the first time and I, i'm hoping most of my listeners got a chance to see it in the theater because now when you see it on blu-ray which i do love i love that they put the scene back in the true nod was we get this whole like oh my god we're gonna get this lap dance and as soon as the music starts it cuts. We cut to them being in the parking lot and that scene gets skipped. And I remember the first time seeing it, the groans in the audience from people <laughs> feeling like they were fucking cheated. I was a part of that because I was, you know, I didn't know what this lap dance was going to be like. You have no clue what, you know, what he's going to film and how he's going to film it. And the fact that he cut it out, I was like, man, this is fucking genius. Like you set us up, like we've been waiting for this. I mean, we had a whole five minute dialogue of girls talking about it. We have him finally delivering the line that we completely forgot was supposed to happen tonight. And then all of a sudden we get a chance to see it and he's like, 
Cut it. We're not we're not putting it in the, the, the film. Did you like that or are you glad that they added it in? Because it is a great scene. I don't know. Maybe maybe it only works in the theater when you're sitting there watching it live. You know what I mean? Live that it's cut and you're like, oh, you feel like you've lost as opposed to when you're now at home and you can, you can see it. I don't know. What are your feelings towards it? I think I think it goes back to the double feature part of it. So like having it cut kind of adds to it. But like at home, if you're watching it as a standalone film, like I don't think it's like extra like i do think it, it plays a part in it i guess i don't really have a strong opinion either way what a letdown how do you feel about the actual lap dance in it like um, I, again a very so i guess like tarantino like choreographed most of it and then she just like took it and went with it and he was like yep <laughs> just do that you did it nailed it go with it i would love to see that i wish there was behind the scenes footage of that <laughs> i would love to see him dancing in front of kurt russell and explaining to another female and then getting on the floor mansplaining a lap, lap dance, dance. <laughs> yes um, well like, i guess it was like her idea to do like the crawl too, that wasn't him. That's genius. That's pure genius. That's that's such a tantalizing move. That that's a home run move. But now that you mention it, I would like to see him crawling on the floor and getting in Kurt Russell's lap. I think that's what this movie's missing. Warren doing if the lap. Anybody dance. knows of this, please reach out to me and let me know. Send me a link. I want to share this with the world. If there is somehow footage or even a photo of Quentin Tarantino choreographing this lap dance. With Kurt Russell, I would pay. I'd pay sums of money for this. It's a, it would make me happy. It'd be maybe I, one of the greatest I, things I, I get the chance to, to see. I'm with you. So what, what we're gonna get together? We're gonna as a collective, we're gonna find it. Anyone, we need to find this. This is the whole. This is our holy grail. We need an Indiana Jones out there to go out there, get your father who's long lost, and find this holy grail for us because it would be great. Now that you, I didn't know he choreographed this. Yeah. Now that I do. I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight. It's gonna, I'm gonna be like in a rabbit hole tomorrow at work, just searching. And I work for a school district. There I go. Why is your search history? If anyone can find it, it's probably going to be you. So I'm glad I, I'm glad I could well, give you that I don't little know. gem. Actually, it'll probably be someone who like it'll probably on the dark web somewhere. It'll probably be somewhere hidden somewhere. Like maybe someone will probably hold on to it. What are those those NTFs or whatever they are? They're selling nowadays. NFTs. NFTs. N- NFTs. Yeah, that's there's my. We age. could. What are them NFTs? If we could buy the NFT of Tarantino lap dancing. Yeah, I would. I would start a GoFundMe. I I feel like we would have to. It'd be so expensive. But the thing is, is I think we could get it because I would buy it, but I would share it with the world. Like I, because then it's mine to do what I want, and I would share it with the world. Like that has to be seen. Like that has to be. That's phenomenal. I mean, I've seen the little uh, behind the scenes of him dancing while he's filming the twist scene. Like he just can't stay still. And so that, I always find that a little bit funny. But this would be the best. Him. him him, I can see him. His, his ass is turned to Kurt, and he's explaining to her, now what you really need, <laughs> Kurt. He's like, now, Kurt, put your hands on her hips. Like, just, it'd be so fucking great. It would be great. Oh, we now have to find this. This I'm, I will not be able to rest. I'll be 100 years old. So like I'll be like the emperor. I'll be clinging to life until I find this video. So we're going to leave this half right now with two things. My favorite moment in this film, I love the fourth wall break. I love when he looks up at us after Pam's in the car. And the other car's pulled out, and he just turns with that shit-eating grin and just smiles at us. And I remember the first time it happened in the theater, people laughing, people loving it, people, some cheer, some clap. Every time, I've seen it a bunch of times, every time he does it, it, it gets me. It warms my heart. And I know it's not, shouldn't it? It's a sinister moment. I feel left out. Really? I think I was like one of seven people in my theater, so I missed all of that. Really? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Because that's uh, such a great moment. I still like even today. I, uh, it's just uh, such a great fucking moment. I, and that's the only fourth wall I can think that's broken in Tarantino world. I don't think there's any other fourth walls being broken. Because if you even if you think about in Once Upon a Time, anytime they're looking at the camera, where the it's where the camera. So like uh, at the end when when Rick is doing the the great Red Apple commercial, he's looking at camera. 
technically bringing it forward, but we're the camera. He's filming that commercial for us. And when he's doing the hullabaloo dance behind the green door, he's singing at the camera, but he's on a show. So, you know, like all these things that look like they're breaking the fourth wall, it's actually the viewer is the television camera or the TV screen that this is playing on. So he's not breaking the wall with us, if that makes sense. Obviously, that makes sense. I can't believe I just said if that makes sense. I just mansplained to you. I apologize. It's okay. I'll, I'll awesome. samsplain something to you later. Thank you. That was terrible. I didn't mean that. I was, <laughs> in fairness, I say it to everybody. I will say, does that make sense to you? Like, like, like I'm some wisdom. Like, I'm, I'm a yogi. I'm floating over I, here. I do it all the time, too, just from being like a manager. It's like, does that make sense? Like, it, just to like, I, I get it. No worries. <laughs> no, I sometimes feel like I'm rambling on. I've, I've, I've over explained it. And then I'm like, does anything I just said make any fucking sense to you? But I do love that. And then the most violent, some of the most violent deaths, and this is why I'm glad you're on, because you've just seen Once Upon a Time. Mm -hmm. And there is some abhorrent violence towards women in that. And when I get on that episode, part of my stance on that is, yes, what what happens to them is terrible, but they're under the vein of them being from the Manson family and us knowing what the Manson family did. So... It's horrible, but I think I think it's that retribution for what they ended up really doing in real life. I just, I, if you're getting broken into, it's fair game. I don't care if you are a guy or a girl or whoever. If you are getting attacked, like I understand it's, and I mean, appreciate it's it. It's very but brutal. Like if I was a dude and someone is like running at me with a knife, yeah, I'm gonna bash their head into the fireplace mantle thing and make my dog bite some dude's dick off. Like that's fair game. Oh, absolutely. If my dog has a chance to do that, I, I almost thought, man, should I train my dog to do this? Like, I'm so I, worried. Like, I, it's I, like my dog's like, this is like really good. I was like, this is a really good idea. I'm like, Jesus. It's just a... Yes, exactly. So, uh, again, in this part, they do have some gruesome deaths. Like, the ladies don't... It's not well. Shanna Banana does not wear a seatbelt, so kids, wear your fucking seatbelt or you'll end up like Shanna. She is catapulted through the front windshield. She hits Mike's car, his windshield, and does a full, like, 360-degree flip and lands on the road. Maybe the easier of the—no, actually, the next death is easier. The poor lady who was brought in to get them drugs, who actually is a stunt um, woman herself. She was the stunt double for Daryl Hannah and kill Bill. So it's interesting. Mm. The two ladies who ended up fighting each other, like so Zoe Bell, who's in the second of this film, and this woman who played uh, Lena Frank, they both actually were you know, the stunt doubles in the Kill Bill fight sequence in Bob Vine 2. But uh, she basically is driving. She takes the full front of it, but she basically gets a bunch of glass in her neck, and that's how she dies. So it's like, not. I mean, it's not I'm like, I'm like, oh, hey, let's get glass in her neck and die. But it's of the violent deaths of the four of them, way, the easier. way easier. Yeah, the, the, the less <laughs> gruesome. Again, a nod of, of, of brilliance. We we see Jungle Julia's beautiful legs the entire time. Like literally, it's the first thing we see of her is they're introduced to that, and she loses a leg because it's out the window, and then dies horribly from that. That the sound of that hitting hitting the pavement was just—it's <laughs> like I can hear it now in my head. I'm like, this is kind of terrible. It's like someone took like lunch meat and slapped it on a counter. Like it's the only thing I could think of. Like it's just like this awful. You need a hug thinking about it. Yes, yeah, it's like oh, but it's but it's genius because like the whole time where like her attributes are like her legs, it shows us these are what she's known for these long legs because everything in her billboard, her legs are up or she's stretched out. So you know we're fed this information that's what we should be looking at, but that she loses that. Mm. But then poor butterfly, she has the car wheel tear her face off and then throw her out the back of the window onto the ground. And I can't forget about poor Pam who was just. What happened to poor Pam was was brutal. Probably the more brutal of all the deaths. Her getting thrown around the car and then her face smashed into the dashboard. I felt it was a really cool homage to 
the slasher film, but I also felt like this may be some of the most violent deaths that women have had in slasher films. Can you think of other slasher films where like like that gruesome of like you know a lot of times you're just they're stabbed or stabbed repeatedly, but this one felt like like we didn't need a chainsaw. No, and not where you like see it afterwards. It's usually like a quick thing, and then you like cut to a different part of the room, or like they go to kill the next person. But I also feel like that just kind of led the idea of Tarantino and women like give them the same respect in their deaths as men because there's been like other like scenes where men have died and their guts are getting ripped out from the inside so like why are women different i like that perspective sometimes i i felt similar but i didn't want it to come across awful but it's like death is death and it's a movie and i think we can all understand that it's fake but it, there is something about seeing it like even sometimes like you know I don't have legs to be putting out a window, but I would never drive. Like, even sometimes when I drive, if I put my arm out, I'm like, oh, shit, I don't want to put it out too far. So if some jackass rushes, you know, Reach. and crushes my arm. <laughs> you, no, no, you know, like, like sometimes you, know, you put it out and sometimes, you know, you're putting it in the air. But I'm always like, oh, like this movie really gets me into the mindset of like, I don't want to lose any Dude, limb like Jungle Julia. I Julio drive with loses. my, uh, well, I ride with my feet on the dashboard all the time. If like Sean's driving, and I wonder if that's like a mental Tarantino thing that's been implanted in my head now that we're talking about it. Well, it's interesting because all the cars we see that happen in are cars that don't have airbags. So the mm. interesting thing is if the airbag were to go off, it would literally catapult your legs into your face and probably kill you. So, I mean, but it'll be a quick death. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but it might be a quick death next time you do it. <laughs> just, just be thinking. I'm always like, yeah, my legs are going to break, but... I'm comfortable. <laughs> but it does give us one, it gives us that chance to see Earl McGraw again. And I love his little back and forth with his son and then his daughter, who we, if you watch the first movie, if you watch it in succession, like if you do it with the Planet Terror, if you do the, the double feature, that happens after this movie happens, but it happens before in the, in the way they roll it. We learn that they didn't have a great relationship and that they kind of mended towards the end. But there was a scene when he says, you know, there's only this guy can, this diabolical son of a bitch can shoot his goo. I, He's one of my favorite side characters ever is Earl McGraw. I love him. Every time he comes on screen in the movies, when he does. But there was a scene shot where after the crash, Stuntman Mike actually masturbates to the crash. Like he's in this car upside down. They cut it, which I think is a good idea. I don't think we need. I don't think we needed it. I think that's. I think that would have been a step too far. Then I wouldn't have been able to like Mike as much. Like I would. I know what he's. I know why he's doing what he's doing. I don't need to. I guess I don't need that visual of it. I don't think, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming by your by your facial expressions, you think, no, I don't think anybody needs Russell. the visual of it. <laughs> a simulate masturbation in a car. We we know why he's doing what he's doing. We don't need to see it. So I, I'm I'm in agreement with. We did not need to see it. Yeah. No. <laughs> but then we jump 14 months. Into Lebanon, Tennessee, which is near where Tarantino was born, which is Knoxville, Tennessee. And we don't waste much time. Mr. Mr. Mike kind of starts right out the gate. We get our new girls. Our new girls are showing up. And they pull up in that. That is a sweet Mustang. Great characters. But it's a real short, real quick scene. And then we get Mike. The scene that I think everyone knows, at least if you know this movie, it's the touching, licking of the fingers and touching of Abernathy's feet. Played by the amazing Rosario Dawson. I love Rosario Dawson. She's a, she's an amazing actress. Again, this goes to what I think is Mike is smooth. He's creepy. Don't get me wrong. He's totally creepy, totally violating her. But he does it with such a smooth and sneaky way how he goes about it. Doesn't like he, like, he throw his makes keys sure one, too. He throws his keys forward. The other girl's singing with the old iPod Touch, which I loved. I loved the little spin dial she's listening to with the earbuds. That was the first time she had ever sang on um like in front of people. Amazing voice. 
I guess like Tarantino was like running around like to the cast being like, did you know she could sing? Did you know she can sing? And her parents were like, well, we knew she could sing. We're just glad you thought she could sing. I don't like people touching my feet as a male. I just, I'm not a big feet person. I don't hate women's feet. I don't want to see men's feet. Like, I'm not like, ooh, look at, you know, I'm like, ugh. But I don't think we're a very attractive species. I, we just aren't. I don't know how you guys even like us. I'm, I'm amazed that I even got married and have kids that people actually want to be with men. We really are just kind of a disgusting being. When he touches her feet, how did that make you feel? Because as a man, I was just like, I was just like, I can't believe he licked her finger and touched her feet. I was like, oh, that's disgusting. But I wanted to die. Like, even now, like, I can't think of much worse that could happen to me. Just not it. It does go, though, to the point that Vincent Vega was making in, in Pulp Fiction, where touching feet is a sensual act. So when you touch someone's feet, where, however you touch it, it is a very sensual act. And usually you only let people who are very, you're, I don't want to say intimate, but who you're very close to, you feel very trusting with, to touch your feet. And to, for him to do that is just disgusting. But how he plays it off, I laugh every time because it's so ridiculous. It's like, where are my kids? Oh, here are they. It's such a brilliant little move. It's a brilliant act of writing to be like, all right, how do we make this work? Where he can kind of get away with it, where normal movies is like the killer standing there and it's like the person thinks they see them, they turn around and they just disappeared. How do we kind of have that moment, but yet make it feel like a very realistic thing that can happen? And when he does, this is the keys part. When he first throws them, I'm like, why the fuck did he throw his keys? And then he does oh. it. Oh, where am I? Oh, here they are. It's just so... it's creepy, then immediately goofy. But if you get a chance to see online, I put it a couple times in some of my posts on Instagram. There's a great shot of Tarantino setting up the shot with her feet out. And like he's there with the diopter looking at her feet. And he's got Kurt Russell there. Just like a really weird behind the scenes shot of how he's like setting up. Here's what I need you to do kind of thing. And I give Rosara Dawson credit for, you know, I'm, I don't know how many takes it took, but. There's like at least three or four different setups of it. And I give her credit, you know, to have the trust in Tarantino and the trust in Russell that it's going to work, that she didn't laugh from being tickled. Because it's probably not as creepy to her because she knows it's coming. She's not like just really asleep. But I give her a lot of credit for saying, fuck it, we'll try this. Let's see, see what happens. Lick my foot. Fuck it, lick my foot. Not only that, but those feet have been in boots all day long from what we know from what we can kind of hear. We know they're from on a film set, so she's just not going to sleep. Like, they have got to stink and got to have a bit of a tang to them. Like, all feet would if you've been in boots without socks for like 18 hours in a day. So the fact that he's like that deprived says, says a lot about Stuntman Mike. It just gives us a lot of information in a small scene. This second half, like we talked about in the first half, they really pull away from the grindhouse homage that we get in that first half. The scratching is limited. The jump cuts are very limited. They kind of lean into it at the end again. But for the most part, we really get this very straightforward. Now we're in like, it's a stalker movie, but we're in a car movie now. We're really starting to get into a car movie. And the pace also seems to be a slow burn in this part. Because after the feet thing... You know, they have a whole big thing about Italian Vogue and why some redneck gas station. in Lebanon, Tennessee has Italian Vogue at a gas station. It's very, it was almost like a drug deal, wasn't it? It was like a weird drug deal. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing to ask a person to, well, I have Italian Vogue. And it was just like this, how did you know that this woman would want that? I guess maybe because she bought the Allure, but do they even sell those magazines much in stores anymore? Like, I know I go into gas stations, like Burn Dairy Stewart's. Like, I don't know that I noticed any magazine um, racks anymore. So I recently, being an early 2000s Hillary Duff fan, really wanted the issue of her on women's health and it turned into this like quest because I was like oh Barnes and Noble easy done they only had an issue of women's health from like November 
2021 and i was just like uh and then it just turned into this thing so we we sean and i literally went everywhere and i was like this is the weirdest like thing i've ever needed to find but i like really was interested in this issue and she looks like amazing on it and then he ended up finding it in syracuse but it's so to go along with it no not really it's all like still like uh the tmz type magazines at the checkout and like forks over knives no you're right like i think maybe wegmans they have an aisle for magazines but the old days of the convenience store having all these magazines like even racks it's just like i don't know when it changed i think in my mind but it's like it's gone now and i thought about that during watching the scene so then they pick up uh zoe bell who is um in the movie as herself so sick it's so cool she's amazing she is unfucking believable she does all her own stunts she is just she's such a badass she's unbelievable in this film but i love that the the car ride now the four girls are together and they're talking and the whole thing about abernathy and this director cecil i love that we get this whole little again it's one of those great moments um like a girl's night but in the car yes i it feels like as a male member of the audience i feel like i'm uh, flying a wall at a, at a girl's slumber party and not the creepy you know kind of, <laughs> but like we get uh, it, we're getting insight into you know how like, the conversations women have with each other that we don't usually get to be a part of so it was it's, it's, you know, you're just sitting there and you're watching it back and forth and it's fun to watch women bust each other's balls like men bust each other's balls it was just great the whole little <laughs> like talking about her sex life and how as a male i would think like oh they're going to have her back but yet they were kind of like well you're not doing anything it was such an interesting conversation. Is that a way that you would see a conversation going? Or do you think that Tarantino is taking a little male creative licensing and imagining how he thinks women would talk in a car when it comes down to, especially because it's about a director? Oh, no, we talk like that. We talk like that. We are probably more vicious to each other than men are to each other about these scenarios. But I think that just like goes along too, where he was like friends with all these different groups of women and would like, I think, I don't know, I was watching... I was watching some interview from like 1994 and I thought I was like watching PBS to be honest. It was like so dated, but he was saying how like (laughs) he would watch these women plan their nights and like if the one woman would be like, oh, I'm probably not going to stay there all night. Like the other friend would expect to call at 2 a.m. and if not 1030 in the morning and get like all the details of how it was how big like where did he take you did he spend you money spend money on you did he tip well like those things and like that is real like not to be you know oh girl talk but like it is what it is and it, actually i find i'm i have more uh guy friends than girlfriends just because of like the different things that i've been into like skate skateboarding and things like that but i think guys are more sensitive in those uh, scenarios about things and are actually harder to get <laughs> to open up about that stuff with each other. So Guys lie with each other. Guys tell fish stories what they do. That's what happened. They tell a whole bunch of shit that probably didn't happen. About a tenth of what's it's being told is the truth. It's either a fish story or nothing at all. And they're like a softie. Exactly. The reason I asked is because because he talks about it being a director. Obviously, he's going to write what he kind of knows. My worry was that like, yeah, wow, it's a great scene. And these girls are talking back and forth about like, you shouldn't be upset that he slept with Daryl Hannah Standen and you know, this and that. Because, you know, you're you're basically acting like a 12-year-old and he's acting like a man. And I was like, I was like, is this real or is this like Tarantino kind of leaning into, you know what I mean? Like almost writing like his own, I don't, almost like fan fiction. You know what I mean? Like it almost like a Tarantino fan fiction story where, where all these women are just clamoring to be with Tarantino and then you know he's disguising himself as this Cecil guy no it's real at least in my group of friends that leads to a scene that I'm covering in the Bible study this this month it's Tarantino's longest one take 
shot. Oh, the diner, the diner scene. Yes, and they have three really great conversations in it, and they go like he keeps going back and forth around, and you don't really pay attention to this one scene. You just you're so enamored by their conversation. Again, he's a master at writing. Well, that's very it's cool too because it's like when you get to meet like Zoe Bell and really dig into her character. So you're just yes, like completely yes. engulfed in that. Tracy Thomas. The young woman who is the who drives and will be the driver in the, the next scene. I hope this doesn't come disrespectful to her. She reminded me as if like she had such Samuel L. Jackson energy. It was as if Samuel Jackson had a female twin and that was her. Like just her delivery, the way she talks in the film, just her, the way she carries herself. Like she comes across as like the ultimate badass of all the women we've gotten to meet in this film, even though Zoe's amazing. But like she is a no nonsense. She's the sharpest. Yes. And again, she, she's a great actress. I hate to you know compare it to Samuel, but just the way her delivery, the way the, the line she was given, I almost feel like if this had been men at the table, Samuel Jackson would have played her part. I could see do that. Do you feel the same? I mean, do, do you see the correlation or am I, am I out of my fucking mind? I can see that. I do think she does kind of, I think she is kind of her own Samuel L. Jackson in what she plays and other stuff too. So I love the second half of the movie a little bit more than the first half. So I like kind of deep dove into it, but like, so it's cool, and you might already know this, but her and Rosario Dawson got a hold of the script, and it was like, oh, these two women that are in the industry traveled the world together, and they're like, basically, Rosario and Tracy were like, yo, what the fuck, we just did this with Ren. So they basically bullied Tarantino, and were like, we're going to do the whole script for you, and we are your women. You don't need to look for anybody else. And that's how they got the roles. They're phenomenal. There's a point where neither of them knew if the other person had landed the role or not so like being friends and being so close they would just like tiptoe around it but even in rent she's kind of like you know the sassy black woman i guess yeah i guess you could say she's a sassy black woman. i just felt like she had such sam l jackson energy just the i don't know just her delivery and her her wit she has zero fucks to be given and will take none yes Yes, the whole why she carries a gun, like even the way she attacks Rosario about you know you're acting like a like a middle schooler. <laughs> it's just everything that she does is just so. It really was like Jules Winfield's sister, like that was Jules Winfield's sister, and she just happened to go and do something better with her life and not live a life of crime in L.A. She went out and did <laughs> movies and stuff. I just love. I mean, I love her so much. And disappointing about this film is that. None of these women, outside of Zoe, pop back up. Like, I'm surprised. Like, I know they all went on to do other things. Rosara and Winstead have had probably the two more successful careers of the rest of the ladies. But the fact that, like, even Sidney Portier and uh, Tracy Thomas haven't been in more... Like, bigger roles. They're so amazing in this film that normally that leads to, you know, some kind of trajectory for the, the characters in a Tarantino film. They usually get, like, the very next couple of years, like, they start to churn out some movies. Even Robert Forrester got a bunch of stuff. I mean, he was in Breaking Bad. And stuff. Like he got some more stuff as he went on, and the fact that like some of the females just don't get it, it's disappointing because I think that the industry is missing out on how great of actresses they they are. I mean, they're just they shine in this film. I mean, I love Kurt Russell, but he's like an afterthought compared to the rest of these ladies in this film. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's he's the eye candy, so to speak. Like he's the person that you're like, oh yeah, that's that's great. Well, that's like even too like comparing the first half of the film to the second half. Like I don't know anything that those women have done. Like uh, Butterfly, yeah, Julia. I think she was on like a, a CSI or maybe like an NYPD. No, they pulled, that's how she landed this. Uh, Eli oh, Roth, so she too. came from there. They okay. were from CSI. Yeah, I don't know why I know that, but 
a lot of these characters got casted from the episodes that Quentin did of CSI. Because uh, I think actually, oh, okay, um, that makes sense. So uh, da, 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 da. Arlene's character, he wrote based off of her existence and was like, either I can give this to her or get someone to act like her. And that was kind of the same thing too. With I think Jungle Julia was based off of someone that was actually Quentin's assistant at one point too. So like yep. he made all these characters. And I think the only like more of a lead role in this film that he didn't have someone specifically in mind for was Mary, Marcy, the cheerleader. Mary. Mary Winstead, I think her name is. Yeah, I think she has like two first names or something like that. Oh, Mary Elizabeth. There you go. Yep. She was the only one that he didn't like have more of a character develop. They, he just wanted to like test people and have like them fulfill the role more fully. And it was like one of the first people. Well, they're phenomenal in this. I absolutely love them. My one thing. So obviously, as I've said, I was on a Nicolas Cage podcast. So I wanted to give a little shout out to my friends who are Nicolas Cage fans. But in this, um, Mr. Tarantino is good friends with him. And I'm hoping that in his last film, Nicolas Cage and Tarantino will finally unite to do something together. But you can see the respect he has because in this film, when they're driving around, they're talking about how they have all these lookalikes. They talk about The Rock. They say they have a Nicolas Cage lookalike. And then when they're talking about getting the car, uh, they talk about, you know, the movies like like Gone in 60 Seconds and Mary Elizabeth looks up as in like she's talking about the Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage. He doesn't have the girl mention Nicolas Cage. He talks about not that bullshit with Angelina Jolie, leaving Nicolas Cage's name out of her mouth. So not to disparage Nicolas Cage. So we get a Nicolas Cage possible look like. We don't disparage Nicolas Cage's name. So I'm just giving some my listeners and also some of the guys who've been on who are fans of Nicolas Cage, just proof that maybe the stars will align one day when the two of them will meet for the last of his movies and be in it. But I liked how he didn't uh, take a shit on Nicolas Cage because they're gone in 60 seconds. The second one is it's not, it's not a very good movie. It's just, it's not a great movie. So now how would you feel if your friends left you behind to be with this Jasper character and tell him that you are a porn star and you're in town to shoot a movie, but you're very shy and that you're going to leave off and drive. I know that of the friend group, she's like the, the newest new member. You know, I think they met her on this film and obviously the others have a history together, but it does feel a little shitty. That's a kind of a shitty thing. How would you feel about your friends if they did this so to you? So I think every girl has a friend that in some way did this to them. Maybe not to this like extreme dream like stranger in the woods no way out situation but like i've definitely been left at like i didn't drive i was a friend left at the bar while someone like found something special to do that night or go be with somebody like we've all been there it sucks um however that is a new level and you know i i do wonder what happened to her I was going to ask that question. What do you think happens between her and Jasper? Because there's no way either of them could know what was going to happen to the car. Like, that's a whole nother conversation. Like, how do you react to that car coming back in the condition it comes back in? Did she in? have a cell phone? I don't remember. I don't think they did. Like, the only person we see with a cell phone in that entire movie, like you said, is when we get the little text message from Jungle Julia. That's the only one we get to see. I don't remember. For some reason, I guess I thought Zoe Bell had one to call the dude. Or maybe it was payphone. The car. No, to call uh, she, Zoe Bell found it. She oh, found the it in the thing. And just filed the address. Yeah. So. Yeah. Poor Mary Elizabeth. I don't think anything. Ha- I mean, the only way something happens is if he rapes her. And I don't want to go. In my mind, I don't think Tarantino would. Anytime someone does something like that, like any, if you go through his filmography, anytime a female is sexually assaulted, usually the character who did that usually finds an un- a very horrible, untimely death. They usually are. It would be. 
killed cool pretty if bad. they did like you know how they taped all those um fake trailers for grindhouse if something later yes, on yes. they like closed that loop with something with her like murdering jasper it, it, was, it was like a sequel yeah, just but yeah. just as like a trailer i guess the one thing we say is if he ends up raping her and he is the trucker he gets his comeuppance when he runs into the bride i guess that's the that's only possible positive but I, yeah i don't like to think about but it's a shitty way to do it to some of your friends that's awful We've all been there. i can't i can't imagine oh it's terrible. Why do the ladies do that to each other? Would you ever play Ship's Mast in your entire life? Regardless of what car it's on. Fucking like- no. Fucking no way. She, um, even, even as, like, set up, like, because there was, like, a cable looped through the hood of the car, looped onto, like, a safety belt, and then someone holding the cable in the back seat. So, like, I tried to look for it the last time I watched it, but, like, to see if, like, you could see someone's head in the back seat the whole time. But even with that, fucking no way. It's terrifying. I mean, I know why they're playing it. It's the most bizarre way of getting off, I guess, in I've ever heard of. And the also, first time like, I saw it, I was like... With a belt, like, from your pants? One, one, it, it, it does showcase the amazingness of Zoe Bell. So that's the coolest thing about it. Oh, like, we needed I mean, it. The fact that, but would I do it? Absolutely not. And those, listen, when you watch it, she's doing all those stunts on her own. Like, it's, yeah, the think, danger's still there. I think the I mean, slowest the, they went with her was, like, 70 miles per hour. And there's times when you see the, I'm like, how she, how did she stay on? Like, I know you said, like you said that, but even with someone holding on, that doesn't keep you from your legs flying off. Like it's trying to keep you up, but there's no guarantee that the person holding on is going to keep you on and that your legs are going to go. You slide the wrong way and the car crushes your legs. Like hats off to Zoe Bell for even attempting that. So that's what I wonder with this, like people just now discovering death proof, if they understand that that's like for real, for real, not just her doing her own stunts, but it's not CGI because that is not a Tarantino thing. Like I know they made like no, yes. full Everything's real. die cast bodies of uh, Zoe Bell to like throw off the cliff, not the cliff, but when the, she goes flying off the car and then just pops up later and she's like, I'm good. Which is hysterical in itself. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's, it's I wonder, like, and that's like one of those things where, like, if you don't know that, how could you appreciate it? Well, speaking of what you just said, when you first saw the film, did you think Zoe Bell's character was dead? Because the way they shoot it, we stay with Mike. Because what ends up happening, we kind of see Mike's man. We, we see her go off. I think so. I think they were going to, my assumption was that they were going to get picked off one by one. It takes me back to the diner scene that I'm going to cover. But there are three things that we learned in that that we should have known. One, that Zoe is very agile and doesn't easily get hurt. Because that's the, the whole falling in the ditch story they talk about. That Kim has a weapon. Kim is carrying a gun. The other one is that Zoe wants to drive her to Dallas Challenger. So we should have known that when she gets thrown that she's going to be okay. But the way they hold on it is fantastic. But how funny is Gert Russell's bitch turn? <laughs> what I mean by like he goes from being this, this whole movie's a badass. He's this 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 psycho, this sicko. And then all of a sudden he gets injured for the first time. And he turns into such a whiny little baby. Like when they're he gets finally shot, like, behind then, like, him. Too? Not even just that one, like when he's trying to pour in the elk on the oh, bullet oh, yeah, and like yeah. he's just why? Why he's like crying. He's don't don't he's like getting so mad at himself for being such a was yeah, and then when they're behind him and they finally catch up to him, <laughs> he should have died when they hit him the first time. Like they hit him with such force when he has that Jack Dance bottle's hand and he goes flying for and then then Zoe hits him with that fucking pipe. Like great, great bit of acting all the way around, but man, he does take a motherfucking beating. But I just love his quick turn. Like We've never seen Michael Myers or Jason or Fred. Like, they don't suddenly, you know, turn tail and suddenly cry and break down and look like a big fucking wuss. That, you know, they're usually just, it's nonstop. It's just a killing machine, killing machine. And yet, here's this very real moment where this guy we think is just like, oh, just a pure psycho murder turns out to be like the softest motherfucker in the entire film. I just love that turn that he does for it. I think that just like, 
adds to it and like why Kurt Russell was the right person. Like you got you get the Santa Claus now. <laughs> I mean, he's been in so many great movies. He's so good in so many of them, which, you know, we forgot to mention. I don't know how big a fan you are of there's a Kurt Russell like trilogy for him and um, John Carpenter. Of the trilogy, there's the, it's, uh, my favorite is Escape from New York, then you've got The Thing, and then you've got Big Trouble in Little China. In the bar that he meets them in, in the first half in Texas and Austin, the tank top that he wears as Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China is actually hanging up on the wall behind them sitting at the table. Did you know that? I did know that. You did know that. Okay, I figured. Are you a fan of that film at all? Um, I think it's. I've reached the point where I need to rewatch it. A lot of stuff that I've watched that are like cult classics like that, I just like was just watching them, not in a place where like I, I was like almost too young to appreciate things. If that makes sense. Gotcha. So we get to the end, and Tracy Thomas. Then we tap that out. She's so funny. Her moment <laughs> at the end is so fucking good. It's so so good. Well, you know I can't let you go. I gotta tap this. Everything about that is fantastic. Now, do you like how the film ends, where the ladies? I mean, obviously the oh, yes. ass whipping circle is phenomenal. Rosario Dawson drops her fucking leg. I scream like it is so good. Oh, she crushed his head. How did they, how does that end for them? Like obviously the movie ends there with that great song, and then they do the whole color thing, the homage to the way they used to check the color for the film before you know they would shoot. What do you think? I mean, they've just I mean they have killed him. Like he is there's there's no way they can say like he was in the accident. And there's plenty of people around who know that they've been in this nonstop car chase crash. How did they get out of this? How did the ladies get out of this? And how do you think Jasper reacts to the fact that his car is absolutely demolished? Demolished. Uh, I don't know. I feel like somehow, perhaps, Mary Elizabeth he just gets out of it and they just don't go back. That would be like the most realistic thing for me because like we're literally looking up these ads, you know, like classified and we don't think that there's any trace back to them. They left a person. Did they leave the Mustang? They left her car. Yeah, the Mustang. So maybe, so I don't know if they left the keys or not. I would hope so. <laughs> But I also feel like they could just get away with it because who's going to look for a stuntman Mike? Like, they're all actively working in the industry. Stuntman Mike's just, like, kind of there, and I doubt he has any, like, family. So do you think they have to go back and kill Jasper and then take their car and just disappear? I don't I don't know. That would be a good movie. It's interesting. It's a fun little thing because, like, it's one of those movies you go, you you left, and you're like, that was so cool how they ended. And then if you, like, start to stand, they go, now, how do they get out of this from this point? I'm like, how does this I think I was end? just satisfied with the ending, so I never thought about it till right now, to be honest Agreed. with you. Like, I was just satisfied. Uh, except I was like, oh, what happened to her? Meh, whatever. That was sick. They smashed his face up. You don't really want to think about what happens. See, I love violence in film. <laughs> Like, I think it's its own form of art. Like, that's, I mean, it could happen in real life, unfortunately, but chances are me ever seeing that in my lifetime, let's just hope are as low as I think they are. There's like, uh, did you see the Multiverse of Madness yet? Yes, I did. Loved it. I think it's long enough where there's no spoilers, but like when Peggy Carter gets sliced in half, I hysterically started laughing. Like, I find like gore and like, violence like that so entertaining like i don't know like i don't know what's wrong with me but it's just so funny and so satisfying <laughs> to me that scene that you're speaking of when a certain other person has a character that no one was sure was going to show up or not oh is head. unspooled is oh. unspooled and then pops yeah or like uh one of my favorite new movies and by the time anyone listens to this it's so far down there. this is august so at this point we're not spoiling anything but my favorite new movie of this century i think is oh. uh oh. everything oh. everywhere oh. all at yes, once yes, yes. 
Yes. And when the cop blows up in the confetti, <laughs> I, I love it. I laugh every time. I mean, I know he's really, I mean, if it's real, he's dead, but he just like kind of throws up confetti and then pops. So like good. a balloon. That I, movie I, is. I love it. Love I, there is nothing I would change about that film. No, I fall in love. That that movie touches me in in, the, in my heart. I, I just love that movie the so much. The further anyway, I am away from the two, the more I like it. Yeah, so that's a recommendation. Please go see a rent now or buy everything everywhere all at once. It's unfucking believable. It's such a good movie. Such a good movie. And it has a little bit of a Tarantino uh, touch to it because Tarantino is the person who talked Michelle Yeoh into staying in acting. She was thinking about getting out and they met up somewhere. I forget. It maybe one premiere of one of the movies she was in and she was thinking about she was done with acting and he was the one who convinced her to stay in acting. So a little nod to Tarantino. Not that he has anything to do with the film because she's phenomenal in the film. She's absolutely amazing in the movie. Insanely flawless. Let's ask our guest. Some fucking questions. What was your favorite song on this soundtrack? I have two. So, Down in Mexico with the lamp dancing. I think when I think of this movie, I think of that song. And one of my favorite things about Tarantino is how much thought he puts into the soundtracks and, you know, just really ties everything together. And then the scene with Hold Tight. Where the girls are in the car and like, am I going to regret saying this? I don't know. So like the second time ever that I smoke weed, I don't like I'm way too much of an anxious person to like go down this path now. But like uh, my like, I think I was like in 11th grade with my best friend at the time. And we were driving down Genesee Street in Utica listening to Neil Young. No, Neil Diamond. Well, whoever, Cowboy in the Sand song. It was very weird. And it just reminds me of that time. And especially right after, like, Jungle Julia just, like, lays down the facts and gives you all of that, like, info. That's, like, such a, like, I used to want to be that girl that could just rattle off the facts about, like, any artist and just, like, be that know-it-all. So, like, I love yeah. that song because of that scene, too. And, like, you just get this whole, you can just put yourself in that car. I agree. Uh, I will say this, though. I said this two years ago when we were doing Watches or Die, and this was the first thing, is I disagree with her with that uh, Pete Townsend should have joined the Diggy, Mitch, Titch, and whoever. I, he was much better off with the hoop. That's just my personal gripe with her comment on Pete Townsend. He did not, should not have been on that band. He was in the right band. What was your favorite character from this amazing film? Um, that's hard. I think part of it's stuntman Mike because he's so like well done, but also like I feel like they all kind of hold their own and they're different. Oh, they really like do. Tracy is the, like the character that I could see myself being. Zoe Bell just like with all the background knowledge of it too, like how much more badass can you get than Zoe Bell playing herself and doing her own stunts and like essentially like this was the launching pad for her career. Like obviously she was like the stunt double for Uma, but she had no idea that she was going to be like a lead in this. He was like, Hey, I'm sending you this script. Like, and then she saw her name on the poster before she even knew, like she thought she was just going to be like, I think what she said was, Oh, I thought I was just going to like order a drink at the bar and do some stunts. So like, (laughs) that's really cool. So I, if I had to pick one, I would say Zoe Bell. Female leads in this. And even the, I guess you'd call them the side character leads. They're just, they're all very strong. So good. Like, they're, oh, oh, my God. Very strong. I mean, again, great writing. Great writing for all of them to be that strong. Your favorite line or monologue from the film? I really love the the black book scene from Stuntman Mike where he, like, puts on the, like, John Wayne accent, too. <laughs> yep. I, it just, it fills my heart with joy. It's just funny. I'm with you. I, I'm with the whole, I've got a book and you're going to... Just the way he says that, such, but then I also so think great. Buzz Lightyear at the same time. <laughs> yes, I know what you mean, yep. 
All right. What was your favorite scene from the film? Uh, the end scene. Can't help it. The ass whooping. Where they just like. Rosario Dawson fucks him up. Just the foot drop alone. It's so sick. It's a great shot because like he gets underneath. He does the uh, the, uh, the old low angle, the trunk shot. And her leg goes, I mean, almost, I mean, I feel like it goes like over her shoulder. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, it almost goes like in an angle. You're like, how did she get it behind her head? And it just comes down viciously. And... I also feel like that's like, uh, she, she like rode the line a lot. To, like, where her character was going to end. And that, like, she's like, no, I deserve to be in this car. I deserve to be on this. I'm going to do this. Funny you say that because... In the actual filming, Rosario Dawson had such a good time being in the car when they were filming. Oh yeah, she wanted to be in the car. Even moments when she wasn't, she she stayed in the car. Yeah, so. Oh yeah, Kurt Russell did a lot of his driving too. Um, he because did. He yes, came he was very from familiar. racing horses or doing tricks with horse something with horses. So like he was like into that too. I think racing horses. Well, but. he's a whole reason we have a lot of the movies of Tarantino's because he gets a lot of information. Him and Kurt Russell talk a lot, and the character of Cliff Booth is really a lot because of. Of the stuff that these conversations Tarantino and Kurt Russell had because Kurt Russell's father was back in the day when he would be on the shows and stuff like that. So there's a lot of information that Kurt Russell has embarked upon Mr. Tarantino that has enriched us and the movies that we've gotten from the man. And that's a wrap on our eighth episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sam Aversa, contributor on the Metal Corner Nerds podcast, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of QT, as well as taking a deeper look at his most underappreciated and most pro-female film to date, Death Proof. Now, you can find the link to the Metal Corner Nerds podcast and the podcast socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, be sure to join me again in two weeks as CEO of Scareflare Records and the host of the Splatterhouse podcast, Sean Wheeler, joins me to dissect and discuss the diner scene from Death Proof. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.